Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is my colleague, Mr. Tim Perkins. Good morning, Daniel. How are you today? Very well, mate. Yourself? I have never been better in my whole life. Really? Yeah. That's quite a claim. Yeah, I've had a swim in the ocean this morning, oh, which makes very nice. me very happy. We've got a great guest joining us today. We do indeed. We've what? got Kim Scott, the author of a book called Radical Candor. Uh, and Radical Candor is another way of saying... How do you have those conversations with people that you work with or live with that might be considered tricky or some people call them difficult conversations? And how do we broach subjects that we find difficult to talk about? Um, how do we avoid having conflict um, over situations that we really need to talk about but we're often uh, disinclined to do? Mm. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I think there's going to be a lot of synergies between previous guests we've had on with uh, Amy Edmondson talking about psych safety or um, Jonathan Raymond talking about the accountability dial. So I'm really keen to to jump into this. So thanks so much for joining us, Kim. Hello, it's great to be with the two of you. Well, we're here in the, on the east coast of Australia in Sydney. You're on the west coast of the United States in California, I believe. Yes, yes. Different days, uh, similar weather. Tell us, we, you know, we obviously need to start by finding out how, how are you getting on uh, personally, how are things going in the States for you at the moment? We believe you're in serious lockdown in California. Yes, you know, things, things I think all over the world are rough. Uh, I, it's selfishly for me as a writer, I mean, I was already pretty socially isolated, so, so it hasn't been too bad for, for me individually, but it's, you know, it's hard for the kids and it's so hard for so many people who don't have enough food, uh, who, who have to show up at work, even though showing up at work is, is dangerous. So it's, um, it's hard, hard times here. Well, we're really empathising with you and sending our best wishes across the water to you because we understand that in certain circumstances people are really struggling and certainly things in the States aren't looking good at the moment. Um, so the reason you're with us today, Kim, is because you've written this book that has really turned us on and is a big part of the work that we're doing these days. And it goes with the, the very interesting title, Radical Candor, How to Get What You Want by Saying What You Mean. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the polite British version. The The U.S. subtitle is Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. Nice, nice. Well, we have got the polite version, but there's no need to stay in the polite <laughs> no, realm. We go, uh, yeah, no, we're going. We're happy for you to be as radically candid as you want with us today. So uh, firstly, uh, Kim, let's start. What is radical candor? Why do we need it? So... All radical candor means is care personally at the same time that you challenge directly. And that doesn't really seem so radical, and yet it is very rare. Uh, it's very rare to do both at the same time. I think very often we have this false dichotomy and we feel like we have to choose between being nice and being effective. And the whole point of the book is you can you can be both kind and effective at the same time. One of the one of the things, you know, when you, you talk about this sort of matrix of yours, which we'll explore in, in, in a minute, but this, this idea of caring personally um, on one axis of that, care is a really interesting element of this. 
sometimes when we're in a work environment, there are people that we perhaps just don't really care about or we have a, a lower <laughs> care factor towards them, particularly yeah. if they've got a personality that we find very challenging. Um, how do we increase the care factor for everyone's benefit? So even if you really don't like the person who you're working with, and, and that is inevitably going to happen, we can always offer common human decency to anyone who we work with. And so that's sort of the baseline is don't fall, at the very least, on the care personally dimension. If, if at the very top of care personally is love, uh, below that is common human decency. And let's not fall below common human decency because then we're into... Uh, then we're into some 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 dangerous territory. And it might be helpful, we sort of described what radical candor is, which is caring and challenging at the same time. When you when you challenge but you forget to show that you care, that's obnoxious aggression. It's, it might be easy to describe what radical candor isn't. Radical mm. candor is not obnoxious aggression. And, and very often when we when we realize we've acted like a jerk, the problem is that we, rather than move up, move in the right direction on the care personally dimension of radical candor, we back off our challenge and we wind up in the worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. That's backstabbing behavior, passive aggressive behavior, political behavior. And it's kind of fun to tell stories about, about manipulative insincerity and obnoxious aggression. When we complain about bad workplace cultures, we usually talk about those two things. But in my experience, the most common mistake that we make is when we do remember to show that we care personally. It turns out most people are actually pretty nice, but we're so concerned about not hurting someone's feelings that we forget to show them that we care, that, that, that we forget to challenge them directly. And that I call ruinous empathy. So radical candor is caring and challenging, obnoxious aggression is challenging, not caring. Ruinous empathy is caring, not challenging. And manipulative insincerity is neither caring nor challenging. One mm. way to get it right, three ways to get it wrong. Yeah, which is probably one of the reasons why we get it wrong more often than get it right, yeah? Because <laughs> yes. there's, there are multiple traps, for want of a better word, to, to fall into. I'm curious just to uh, dig back into that idea of caring, because one of the things I've been playing with is the idea of it could it can be hard to care personally about somebody perhaps if there has been a history of of issues or dramas and you know one of the things we're keen to explore is the real human response to this but one of the things we've been saying is okay well if it's hard to care about the person themselves can we conceptualize the relationship as something that needs to be cared for because of the implications that a positive or negative relationship here might then have on people around us. It, is, it, is, that, is that workable? Is that viable? I mean, obviously, ideally, we want to care for the person themselves. But when that's hard, does that work as a concept to consider the relationship as a, something different? I think it. I think it could work for 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 a lot of people. I don't think it would work for everyone. Uh, I, I think for some people, it can be helpful to sort of remove yourself from this person who has made you so angry or upset you or or frustrated you in some way. I mean, the thing that is very helpful for me is to think about like. If you're building a, I spent most of my career in tech, and if you're building a tech product, very often you you have technical debt, 
So this is where you've sort of taken some sloppy shortcuts over time and you wind up with, with a code base that has become unwieldy. And I think in relationships with people, sometimes we wind up with feedback debt. And, and what happens when there's feedback debt is there's something that has gone, something that's bothering us that we haven't given voice to, that we haven't explained, that we haven't said. And pretty soon that thing looms so large, you can't say, see anything else about the person. Somebody, I gave a radical candor talk once and somebody came up to me afterwards and they said, you know, if I had only heard this talk five years ago, I wouldn't be divorced. And went on to explain when he first got married, his wife clinked her spoon on her teeth when they were eating cereal in the morning <laughs> and it bugged him. But he didn't want to be petty. You know, he didn't want to say anything. He wanted to have this happy marriage. And then the next day, since she didn't know it bugged him, she did it again. And it bothered. Finally, five years later, she clinked her spoon on her teeth the last time. I need a divorce. He, I mean, I'm sure there were other things going on in the relationship. But I, I hope think, so. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's hope it wasn't just the spoon on the teeth. It was symbolic i'm sure of other things but but this happens with relationships so if we the relationships are sort of cumulative and if if you let the bad stuff pile up uh it some small thing makes it spill over so i think that i think that it can be really helpful it's it's a hard it's too hard to say i have to love this person i have to care about this person but if 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 you say to yourself, I am a person who needs to show common human decency, and part of showing common human decency is having a conversation about something when it's going wrong, then I think you can begin to, to clean up some of that feedback debt in, in the relationship. That's really interesting because um, what I'm hearing there is that, you know, this the, the conversations, the relationship that you're having, it must be coming from a place of respect, empathy and honouring the other person in order to have an authentic desire to actually improve a situation, be able to have that conversation with the person, that thing that you're avoiding having, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if you feel contempt for the other person, it's going to be really difficult for you to be radically candid. Uh, con contempt is is such a dangerous emotion but i think if we if we all pause and think about it not, none of us want to be contemptuous people and we all want to show common human decency and so i think if you can think about it not in terms of judging the other person but this interaction with this other person is going to give i can't control the other person but what i can control is how i respond to the other person and I want to respond in a way that reflects who I am in the best possible light. You've used four, uh, in the four quadrants of this model, you've used four really interesting and deliberately contentious uh, terms, is my guess. Um, yes. The least contentious of which is radical candor itself. I'm really interested in the ruinous empathy. So if we're imagining a grid for the listeners, if we're imagining a grid, Radical candor's up in the top right where, you know, you're high on caring personally and you're high on challenging directly. If we move across to the left-hand side of that grid, we've got ruinous empathy. So the care factor is still high, as you've described a minute ago, but the, the desire to challenge or the actual act of challenging is much lower. Ruinous empathy, it's a really interesting um, 
pairing of words because empathy would we we assume it's always in the positive but this yeah. is the type of empathy that's really ruinous so what it leads to as you've said in your model is ignorance on the part of the person who's not being spoken to um, therefore there's no change and what we're really doing is we're being silent to avoid hurting the the feelings of that other person often or just because we don't like conflict how do we really challenge people to move from ruinous empathy which i think in most basically respectful workplaces is probably the biggest issue. Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I would say like 90% of the problems are occur in ruinous empathy. And I think the the motivation, the intention often behind ruinous empathy is not a bad one. You want to be kind to the other person. You don't want to hurt the other person's feelings. And so for me, the thing that has been most helpful to, to prompt me to move out of ruinous empathy and into radical candor are really telling myself stories, like remembering that moment. So in order to explain what I mean by ruinous empathy and, and to remind myself of why it is such a problem, I'll tell myself a story, and I'll tell you the story now too, about probably the worst moment in my career. I had just hired this guy, we'll call him Bob, and I really liked Bob a lot. He was smart, he was charming, he was funny. He would do stuff like we were we were at a manager offsite and we were at a I was I had started this software company. So it was a startup, we were all stressed, there was a lot going on, we were busy, and somehow we wound up playing one of those endless get to know you games. And Bob was the, and nobody really wanted to be playing it. And Bob was the only one who had the courage to raise his hand and say, look, I can tell that everybody's stressed out and that we need to get back to work. So I've got an idea. It'll help us get to know each other and it'll be really fast. Whatever his idea was, if it was really fast, we were down with it. <laughs> and, then, and then Bob says, let's just go around the table and confess what candy our parents used when potty training us. Really weird, but really fast. Weirder yet, we all remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there's a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person <laughs> at the right moment. <laughs> so Bob brought a little levity to the office. Uh, you, you know, we all loved Bob. One problem with Bob, he was doing terrible work, absolutely terrible work. He would hand stuff into me and there was shame in his eyes. And I could not understand what was going on because he had this great resume, this history of accomplishments. I found out years later that the problem was that Bob was smoking pot in the bathroom uh, three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that Bob was doing bad work. And I would say something to him along the lines of, oh, Bob, this is such a great start. You're so awesome. You're so smart. Everybody loves working with you. Maybe you can make it just a little bit better. And of course, he never does. Now, let's pause for a moment and sort of examine why I said such a banal thing to Bob. I think part of it was ruinous empathy. The majority of it was ruinous empathy. I really liked Bob, and I really didn't want to hurt his feelings. But if I'm honest with myself, there was also more than a little dose of manipulative insincerity in my behavior because everybody loved Bob. He was popular in the office. And Bob was also kind of a sensitive guy. And I was afraid that if I went and told him in no uncertain terms that his work wasn't nearly good enough, that he might get upset. He might even, God forbid, start to cry. 
And then everybody would think I was a big you-know-what. So the concern for my reputation was the manipulative insincerity part. The concern for his feelings was the ruinous empathy part. And this goes on for 10 months. Uh, And eventually the inevitable happens. And I I realize if I don't fire Bob, that I'm going to lose all my top performers because they're sick of redoing his work. Their deliverables are late because his deliverables are late and they can't understand why I'm putting up with this. So I sit down to have a conversation with Bob that I frankly should have started 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to him where things stood, he kind of pushed his chair back from the table. He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question is going around in my head with no good answer, he says, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realize that I had screwed up in a bunch of different ways. I had never solicited feedback from Bob. I never asked him what was going well from his perspective. And I never asked him what I might be doing that was contributing to the situation. Maybe... Maybe I was doing something that was frustrating poor old Bob so much. He was forced to toke up in the bathroom three times a day. I don't know because I never asked him for feedback. I never solicited feedback. The kind of praise I gave him was really just an ego salve or a head fake. And I never told him when his work wasn't nearly good enough. And perhaps worst of all, I failed to create the kind of environment in which everyone would tell Bob what was really great about his work and about working with him and when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed Bob in all these different ways, just trying to be nice, I'm now firing him because of it. Not so nice after all. And all I could do, it was too late to save Bob at that point. Even he agreed he should go. His reputation on the team was shot. All I could do in the moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again and that I would do everything in my power to help other people avoid making that mistake. And that's really why I wrote Radical Candor and came up with this framework and why I'm here talking to you all today because these, and I think these stories, if you can think of that moment in your life when you failed to tell somebody something, just trying to be nice, and it had a really bad result on the relationship and maybe on their work and on their life, then you'll remember that it is an act of kindness to speak up. It's actually profoundly unkind not to speak up. It kind of flips the whole thing on its head. And then it becomes much, you feel kind of gross if you aren't telling the person. You feel like you're like you're not brushing and flossing, you know? Mm. it's 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 also respectful right it's it's yeah. not just kind it's actually professionally respectful and personally respectful i'm, I'm interested because I, I can imagine a lot of scenarios and it sounds like um maybe whether it was you, you were feeling this or not but I, I i know a lot of people who we might come across in our work might say well yeah but if bob wasn't doing all that stuff then i wouldn't need to be radically candid and, and a lot of leaders tend to go but if they just did their job you know, the amount of times we hear, but they, if they just do their job, we don't have to worry about any of this. How did, and, and you use the word ego, actually, when you were describing that, how do you encourage leaders to recognize that it's as much about themselves, it's as much about them putting their ego aside, as it is about Bob doing his job? And I like yeah. the way that rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, if everybody just did their job, then the leader wouldn't have a job, would they? (laughs) Like, what what the (laughs) hell do you think? (laughs) What the hell do you think your job is? So, so everybody makes mistakes. Everybody, and, and the and the truth of the matter is. For the vast majority, I mean, some people, I think, can go into a cave and find enlightenment. But most of us need other people to point our mistakes out to us. It's so hard to see your own mistakes. It's easy to see other people's mistakes. And so so we need other people in order to learn and grow and improve in our work. So I think that's part of it. You know, sometimes uh, I will work with a leader who says, you know, my philosophy is I just hire the right people and I get out of their way and let them do their job. And to me, that's a little bit like saying, you know, the recipe for a happy marriage is to find the right person, marry them, and then never spend another single moment with them. Like that's, we all know that's not like a, a, the, the core job of a manager is to build a good relationship with the people on their team. It is relationships that move us forward and help us grow. And if you don't spend time with people, if you don't talk to people, if you don't tell them about the the, the good stuff they're doing, if you don't recognize and praise the things that are going right, and if you don't recognize and help to solve the things that are going wrong, like what's what do you think your job is mm. as a leader but it's also asking them where, where you're at as well right it's it's getting yes. the feedback for yourself as a leader which i think is some of the most challenging parts for 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 a lot of a lot of leaders you know they they feel the need to prove themselves and by asking others what they think they they might run the risk of uh, shattering that somewhat fragile uh, disposition yeah, and of course, there's a, there's an important order of operations of radical candor. And I think a misconception of the idea is that it's all about the boss criticizing the employee. And actually, radical candor begins no matter who, you're, who your relationship is with, no matter whether you're the boss, the peer, the employee, the friend, the spouse. It always starts with soliciting feedback, with, with making sure that you understand the other person's perspective on what you could do or stop doing that would make it easier for them to work with you, live with you, be friends with you, whatever. Yeah, well, I know one of the key factors that you talk about is relational awareness. And I suppose what you're just saying there really speaks to that idea of relational awareness in order to understand where that other person's coming from, to empathise with them, to ask how they're getting on and solicit feedback, as you say, from them. Um, um, you, men- you mentioned in the book that, you know, uh, initial forays into radical candor are likely to be somewhat challenging, um, particularly when not everybody's got the same language, not everyone's read the book, not everyone's done the workshop. Um, can you give us some ideas about first steps for people? Because some people are going to be listening to this going, I really like the sound of this. I'm going to become more radically candid, but how do I start? What do I do? Yeah, so I think one of the best places to start is is in soliciting feedback. And perhaps you want to put it into perspective. You want to explain to people why you're going to start doing this. And so if you think about two stories that you can share with your team, I think this is a good way to kick it off. 
So, so, and, and you can use the radical candor framework that we just described. Vertical, vertical line is care personally, horizontal line is challenge directly. I'm going to try to do both at the same time. I'm going to try to be radically candid. And then think of a moment, think of a moment in your life when someone told you something that maybe stung a little bit in the moment, but stood you in good stead for the next 10 years of your life. So in the book, I tell a story about my boss who told me that I said, um, too much, and it made me sound stupid. And I kept brushing her off. And Old she, Cheryl Sandberg, yes, eh? Yes. And, and she, I kept brushing her off. That was how she got, she started off by saying, you said, um, a lot in, in there. Were you aware of it? And I kind of, ah, it doesn't matter. And then, and then she said, I know this great speech coach. I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? No, I'm too busy for a dumb old speech coach. And then she stopped and she looked at me and she said, when you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. So, And that finally got my attention and got me to the speech coach. So I think you want to think about your um, story. What is that moment in your career when someone told you something? And, and share that story with your team. Because you, again, you want to make yourself the goat. You want to make yourself vulnerable. Uh, I, you know, I screwed up. Somebody told me, and it helped me. And I want more help like this. That way, you're 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 posing radical candor as a gift, and it's a gift that you don't just want to give. You actually want to receive. And then think of another story. Think of your Bob story, the story I just told about the guy. Uh, the guy who was smoking pot in the bathroom, probably because I was frustrating him. But what what is that moment in your life when you failed to give somebody feedback, just trying to be nice, and then it had a really bad result? And if you sort of illuminate the radical candor framework and use your stories to to explain what you mean by these words, now all of a sudden, You've shown the people who you work with that you really mean this, that you really care. You've made yourself a little bit vulnerable, and you've created sort of a shared vocabulary for people. So, so everybody understand. Yeah, and and hopefully, radical candor can be a dangerous term. Sometimes I'll be working with a team to roll it out, and somebody will come charging into a meeting and say, "In the spirit of radical candor." And then they'll behave like a garden variety jerk. And that's the spirit of obnoxious aggression, not radical candor. <laughs> so you want to make sure you, you walk people through all the quadrants so they understand what's what. And then you can start soliciting feedback and do that at the end of your one-on-one. That is like if you have one-on-ones with everybody who works uh, for you, all your direct reports, if you save five minutes at the end of each one to solicit feedback, now you're baking it into your routine. And then you want to, the next step, so I'm, I'm walking us through the order of operations. And, and by the way, this is a lot for people who are listening. If you just do one thing as a result of this podcast, figure out how you're going to solicit feedback. Like, what is the specific question you're going to ask? Uh, and, and it can't be, do you have any feedback for me? Because I can tell you the answer to that already. Oh, no, everything's fine, you know? Nobody really wants to hear, nobody wants to give you feedback, except maybe your children. If you have kids, they genuinely want to, but nobody else. Or an ex-partner. That's, yeah, that's true. That's true. So anyway, nobody at work really wants to give you feedback. So you've got to think of a question that can't be answered with a yes or no. So, and it needs to sound like you. I'll tell you the question I like, but I'll, 
offer some other suggestions as well. The question that I that I use a lot is what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? But I was working with Krista Quarles when she was CEO of OpenTable, and she said, I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. The question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. Okay, that's <laughs> fine. That works too. So, so think, think about the, the words that will flow trippingly off your tongue and use those words. If you sound like Kim Scott, it's probably not going to sound very authentic. So ask. So that's the first thing. And, and if you stop there, you're batting way above average. You're fine. But now let's talk about giving it, giving radical candor. Remember, it's both praise and criticism. And especially if you're a leader, your job is to paint a picture of what success looks like, to, to paint a picture of what the possibilities are. And it turns out praise is a much better tool for doing that than criticism. So focus on the good stuff first and foremost, and be really specific and really sincere. Don't just, if you just say something you'd say to a dog, like good job, that's, that's, it's not good praise. So you want to, you want to get just as specific and just as much into the details with praise as you do with criticism. So now it's time to give some criticism. How do you do it? When do you do it? By far, the best criticism I've ever gotten in the course of my career has happened in these impromptu two-minute conversations. This is not, again, this is not a root canal. This is brushing and flossing. This is basic, this is basic maintenance. And so what, but the, and, and so this is nice, you know, it's a two minute conversation, it's fast, it's free, but it does take enormous emotional discipline to say the thing because you don't want to, nobody wants to. And so, so what is the right mentality to go into that conversation? And it, you know, if you're, if you're in lockdown, like we are, you probably need to pick up the phone and call or schedule like a five or 10 minute zoom as soon as possible, right after the, the incident occurred. So you want to go in, you want to be helpful. You want to state your intention to be helpful. You want to be humble. You want to do it right away. You want to do it synchronously in, in, in the ideal world, you want to do it in person, but at the very least you want to do it either over video or voice. You don't want to just send an email. Uh, you want to praise in public. You want to criticize in private. And you want to use situation behavior impact to make sure that you're not criticizing someone's personality or praising someone's personality, but rather that you're telling them what to do more of or what to do less of. So that, that's sort of giving it, but you're not done yet because if there were if there were objectively radically candid words, I would just send an email out. But the problem is there aren't. It's, as you said earlier, it's very, you have to pay attention to the person and it's very relative person to person. So sometimes the person will be upset. They'll be, they'll be angry or they'll be sad. And then you need to attend to the care personally dimension. Other times the person won't hear you and you need to attend to the, challenge directly to mention. So you need to gauge how what you're saying is landing. And you need to remember that giving good praise or criticism is more about listening than choosing just the perfect words. It's interesting that you you, you talk about that because the, the words we choose are often dictated by our, you know, our mindset going into things. And, and one of the things we try and help people get past is this idea of, you know, the, the, the difficult conversation, you know, because by, by, 
definition, we, we think it's going to be difficult. They're, they're building themselves up for this. And then they start saying things like, yeah, I've just got to be brutally honest with this person. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, and, and, and it's even though they'll tell us or they, they do care personally about this issue, the language and the mindset that they're putting around it then contributes to, as you just said, the wrong words for the wrong people at the wrong time. And again, I come back to this idea of, uh, you know, the, the leader here really needing to understand that it's about them as much as it is about the person that they're, um, you know, giving the, the radically candid feedback to. I think that's a, such an important point because one of the one of the most common mistakes I see leaders make is they think that their job is to manage or control the other person's emotions. And that is an impossible task. You are not in charge of someone else's emotions. They are in charge of their own emotions. The best you can do as a leader is to manage your own emotions. And then to be present for the other person's emotions, which you can neither control nor predict. So I think very often people, because they dread these conversations, they go in with this whole script that they've sort of like memorized. And then they're not paying enough attention to how the other person is responding. And they're, they're not gauging how what they're saying is landing. And that's how miscommunications and uh, happen and, and upset. Mm. gets created so pleased you said that because that's a lot we'll often go in and say leave your script outside and then but people go yeah but I went on a difficult conversation training program which told me you know they have to have a script or they have to be and and it's like okay well just ignore that for a moment because how's it working out for you (laughs) you know (laughs) it isn't yeah do you have you had any pushback in that space people who have written lots of stuff around difficult conversations has yours pushed back against some of that in in some ways You know, part of the reason why I wrote Radical Candor is that I felt like I had so much bad training around how to have, how to give feedback, how to receive feedback, how to create a culture in which people can be open with each other. And I think that a lot of that, a lot of that training, it was well-meaning. What they were trying to help me do was feel confident that the conversation might go better than 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 I feared. And I think that's true. I, I really do think nine times out of ten, radical people will just say, oh, thank you for telling me. Like it's not, it's not nearly as big a deal as we make it. And 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 yet one time out of ten, and these are not, I don't have data here. I'm just pulling numbers out of the sky. <laughs> that's my kind of data that Kim. I like that kind of data. <laughs> um, but roughly speaking, one time out of 10, you're going to have you're going to have a hard conversation. You're going to have a what I call a radical candor train wreck. And I don't want to <laughs> pretend to people that you won't have those. But what I want to say is that you can recover from that. That's why gauging the feedback is so important. You go in, you say the thing you want to say, you, you may not say it perfectly, and that's okay. You can respond with agency and grace, even if you don't say it perfectly, if you focus on the other person, how they feel, and adjusting. So again, I think very often we don't say something to someone because we're afraid that it'll make them cry. We're afraid that it'll make them yell at us. And if you realize that it is in your capability to respond with curiosity and to understand the human need behind the emotion instead of having to try to hide from the emotion, then you're probably going to be okay. 
And if you understand that sometimes you might go in, you might say the thing you've been working up the courage to say, and then the person may not hear you. They may not, you know, you, mm. and now you have to say it again. <laughs> and very often people don't say it again. And yet this is your job. It's your job to be clear. It's your job to say it and say it until you've gotten through to the person. One of the things I just want to pick up on something you said a few minutes ago, um, you talked about these, uh, these sort of conversations requiring enormous emotional discipline. And I think that's really helpful for us and really instructive because it makes the responsibility ours to actually take on that conversation. And as Dan uh, and you were just discussing, a lot of people refer to these as difficult conversations, which then become self-fulfilling prophecies. Yes. And one of the things that, you know, we often say to the people we work with is that we forget them as difficult conversations, think about them more as adult conversations, you know, conversations that are happening more regularly, that they're productive, they're useful, they're helpful conversations, so that we're actually training ourselves in the skill. And that actually reduces that 10% factor so that, you know, you end up having these conversations because people are familiar with the sort of language that you use. I would imagine in an environment where... You know, I, I was listening to uh, elements of your podcast um, in preparation for this and, and one of the interesting challenges is how do people manage upwards? Because this is, a, this is an issue that we come across with a lot of our clients is how do we have the conversations where the power dynamic is not in our favour, perhaps? Um, I know you've, you've talked about that. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, my philosophy about power is very simple. Power is bad. <laughs> there are few things that will damage a human relationship more than a power imbalance. And so I think the, and yet we need hierarchy. I actually believe in management structures and you need, you need a CEO and you need VPs and you need directors and you need managers. And, and so how, how can we, when we're in the position where the other person has authority, how can we make sure that we have a sense of agency. And if we're in a position where we have authority, how can we lay the power down so that we can get on an equal footing and build a real relationship? And it's really interesting to me, the people I know who've been the most successful, who've built the best relationships in their companies, often are able to just ignore the power the, the the power imbalance and and to speak very forcefully with with their boss with their leaders so how do they do that I, you know and I want to acknowledge it's easy for me to sit here and say be radically candid with your boss but it's it's hard to do it I one time I gave a radical candor talk and somebody tweeted at me afterwards tried radical candor on my boss got fired and I was like oh no. <laughs> I heard that on your podcast, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrible. You know, and I was like, how can I help? And the person said, actually, I've already got another job. I'm fine. Thank you. Mm. So, but th so how can, how can we practice radical candor safely? And the answer is to go back to this order of operations, because it is offering radical candor to your boss is hard. It's also very difficult for the boss to offer radical candor to the employee. Uh, it's very difficult to offer radical candor to your peers. It's uh, Radical candor is difficult up, down, and sideways. So mm. the thing that makes it safe is, again, start by soliciting feedback. You want to make sure that you understand 
the world, at least as much as you can from the other person's perspective. And you want to make sure that if the person has some some critical feedback for you, that you know what it is before you launch into criticizing them. So, uh, so solicit feedback first. Uh, and also, I think, especially when you're offering critical feedback to your boss, try to take a step back and imagine the world from their perspective. Because very often people get into trouble when they think their boss is an idiot for making a certain decision. And if the only thing the boss had to take into account is that person's sort of narrow perspective, then the boss would be making a a bad decision. But if you Sorry, that was my dog. I don't know if you could hear that. Um, but <laughs> but if you if you take a step back and you understand all of the things that your boss may be having to deal with, and you understand not only optimizing for your own area, but op- optimizing for the whole company, then then you may be able to understand where your boss is coming from a little bit better. So take a step back, ask your boss for feedback, think about your boss's context before you jump into it. The next thing that I recommend is for anybody, uh, but especially if you've got some feedback for your boss, is to make sure that you are focusing on the good stuff. There are things that your boss does that you probably appreciate, but you may not be giving voice to those things. And you may not be giving voice to those things because you don't want to kiss ass or something like that. And nobody wants to be a a suck up. But, I love you Californians. We're talking about kissing ours. We're talking about smoking yeah, crack. Yeah, these Californians <laughs> are so great. crude. So crude. <laughs> um, nobody wants to be a suck up. But the fact of the matter is that you really do, there are things probably about your boss that you appreciate. And if you can remember the good stuff, you're going to have a better conversation when it comes to talking about the bad stuff. So now you've solicited feedback. You've you've at least thought about the things you appreciate. Maybe you've given voice to the things you appreciate about your boss. Now you want to start out and you want to start out in kind of a gentle way. And you want to say, you know, there's something that I'd like to talk to you about is now a good time. And, and judge how your boss responds. Usually, again, nine times out of 10, they'll respond well. And then don't go immediately to the outer edge of challenge directly, but say it in kind of a, a gentle, neutral way, wh- whatever it is that's bothering you. And then pay attention to the response. And if your boss seems angry, if your boss seems upset, that's okay. It's because your boss is a human being. Try to respond to the human need and move up a little bit on the care personally dimension. Nine times out of 10, however, your boss will sort of not really hear what you're saying because your boss is probably super confident and you're going to have to say it again, maybe more sharply. And so find, again, find the courage to move out on the challenge directly dimension when it's necessary, but don't go to the outer edge immediately. I've been playing with an idea. I've been listening to your podcast and I heard in relation to exactly what you've just been talking about, you used the phrase tread gently, but tread. Yeah, And I, I really, the, the phrase was playing in my mind um, and I was thinking about it and Dan and I have just been playing with this idea. Tread gently but tread says to me, this is sort of confident, front foot, brave, empowered sort of speech. Remember to tread. 
the reverse of tread gently but tread might be tread but tread gently, <laughs> which sounds to me much more fearful, cautious, apologetic, powerless. Yeah. And I think the the order of those, that phrase is super important. Um, I want to try this idea out on you. It's your phrase, tread gently, but tread. What are your thoughts? You know, it, it, what, it, what it brings up for me is this pillow that my great-grandmother ne- needle-pointed for each of her four daughters. And the pillow said, say something, you can always take it back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and to me, that's the spirit of... Of she'd be so proud of you writing. Yeah, she'd be so proud of you writing this book. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Mama uh, taught me taught me a lot, even though I never met her. So, so I think that the the and and I don't think you want to take it back if somebody is upset, but you can adjust. And so I think that the important thing is to start. It is silence is so tempting. And saying nothing feels so easy. So if you can just say a couple of words, now you've got momentum on your side. And once you start, you, it's easier to guide uh, the conversation than it is to start the conversation. So just start. Just say, just say it. Earlier this year, we had um, Amy Edmondson on the podcast who um, wrote the book, The Fearless Organization, and really dug into the concept of psychological safety. And what I'm hearing here is radical candor. I can imagine it sharing a, like a symbiotic relationship with the, con- with the concept of psychological safety. You yes. know, one, I'm, I'm not suggesting that one comes before the other. I'm suggesting that perhaps they both evolve um, together. I'm wondering if you've thought about that uh, when it comes to radical candor and, and the way in which it can be dependent on and help create psychological safety within a within an organization. Yes, I, I love Amy Edmondson's work, and the notion of psychological safety is is one that I'm extremely enthusiastic about. I I was joking with Amy uh, just a couple of days ago that when I started writing Radical Candor. I really, I, I made a decision that, that was difficult to make sitting here in Silicon Valley. I wasn't going to do the research and I wasn't going to get the data because it was, it was difficult enough for me just to try to make sense of my own experiences as a leader. But I feel like Amy Edmondson actually did the research that backs up the, the, the idea. So I think a lot of ra- radical candor is a necessary condition for psychological safety. If you cannot... If the leader of an organization is not soliciting feedback, then it it feels very unsafe for people to offer the leader feedback. And if if a leader of an organization is is not responding well after they solicit feedback and they get some, then the organization is not going to offer that leader feedback in the future. And and when that when when that happens, people are less likely to offer each other. It's less likely to happen between peers. And and so the environment of psychological safety suffers in in a feedback-free zone. Absolutely. Look, we've had um, a lot of time, you know, one of the joys of our work is that we can take time to really, you know, read the books and dig out the podcast as Tim's been alluding to and then sit down and really talk things through and you know try and 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 I guess you know do that in a way that a lot of time busy people um, you know who are running bigger companies maybe don't have the time to do those things if one such person like that is is listening and they've heard this podcast and they've gone oh that 
really has you know struck a chord where can they find out more about you your work um you know where, where do they where can they really dig into radical candor well, of course, you can read the book. Uh, it's always a good idea to read the book. But if you don't have time to read the book, go to RadicalCandor.com. There's a couple of talks that I've given that are only 20 minutes that'll give you a pretty decent overview of, of Radical Candor. And the other thing that we did, and you can find this on our website, again, RadicalCandor.com as well, is we created a sitcom. Uh, acknowledging that not everybody has time to, to read a book or or loves to read as much as I do, uh, we, we made a movie about, about the idea. And we okay. made it with Second City, the improv group in Chicago. And ah, brilliant. yeah, it was, it was really fun. And it's five 10-minute episodes that are paired with some improv exercises and kind of a cheat sheet on the ideas of radical candor. And you can watch it yourself or you can watch it with your team and, uh, and really begin to, to build that radical candor muscle. Uh, to create a culture yeah. of radical candor. I love that idea. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Uh, per, permission can... to steal it, please. <laughs> permission to steal that idea. That is an amazing well, idea. Good. Yeah, I think the more, the, the, more funny, uh, the more funny sitcoms there are about these good management ideas that are out there, the better. Because uh, as I, I really tried to write radical candor in a way that made it feel more like a, a book of short stories than kind of a boring, dry management book. Yeah, right. But yeah. Uh, but I it was it was interesting. I was I was doing a, a workshop recently, and somebody came up and started complaining that we had we that the pot that we hadn't done enough podcast episodes. She was like, "I'm never going to read your book, but I will listen to your podcast." So we also have a podcast. We'll we'll put all the links to that stuff in in the show notes. Uh, Kim, it's been fantastic talking to you. We've really appreciated your time. Um, and we've read your book uh, and we've listened to uh, elements of your podcast. Thank you. But honestly, I, I, I feel like we've got a whole lot more mm, by speaking to you today and and uh, having you uh, in the flesh, mm. as it were. That's right. By almost, distance. Almost in the flesh. In the uh, a very socially distanced flesh. And your dog as well. And Lovely to have your dog join us. That's right. It sounded like your dog was setting the table there at one stage. <laughs> yeah, sorry. The dog was shaking uh, and that was her collar anyway she was sending, she was sending you a little radical candor too beautiful well it's been really great to talk to you we really appreciate your time and in this mad time that you're experiencing in the u.s at the moment both with the pandemic and with the political situation uh we really do uh send you the best possible vibes from australia across the ocean and hope that things uh, really start to improve over there for you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I want to say it's such a comfort to know that Australia is there. If Trump had won, I, I, I might be a resident. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much, Kim. Thank you. Well, that was a very interesting chat. Uh, Dan, tell me, what, what do you take away from that conversation? Oh, there's so much, mate. Um, like, not least... Um, different ideas for the way we can introduce this to the people we're working with or we can explore this in our Habits Academy. But the one thing that really um, struck me was the idea that you can be in more than one quadrant at the same time. Mm. So up until now, I've really been thinking about the idea that if, you know, if I care for someone... Uh, then I could only be radically candid or um, ruinously ru yeah, empathetic. Exactly, but yeah. the, the the way in which Kim was talking about also falling below that line, 
and and perhaps being a bit manipulatively insincere with with Bob. Mm. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's going to be quite an interesting uh, provocation to explore with people as we uh, sort of see what this means for for leaders and you know in their in their roles. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating one too because if you're looking at the grid, those of you who've Googled this while you've been listening to the podcast... And we're going to put it in the show. I thought we might as well put that in the show notes as well, I reckon. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you're looking at that grid and you're thinking what Dan's talking about, they're above the line, so there are two factors that are above the line, which implies that you your care factor is high. Um, but when you go below the line, you may still have a high care factor for the person, but you might have a higher care factor for yourself... Mm which is an interesting uh, element, I suppose, of what you're talking about there, Dan. Um, Yeah, I also like the idea of where she talked about that nice, simple analogy of brushing and flossing and the work that you sort of do, the upkeep work that's required in a relationship so that you're giving regular feedback to each other rather than having to have root canal therapy, Mm. as she's talking about there. So dealing with things along the way and when she tells that story about Bob and how she really feels like she let him down by not having continuous proper feedback conversations uh, and instead she had to fire him, which uh, is not where you want to get to. No. So one of the things we mentioned in there was uh, we were reflecting on how fortunate you and I are to be able to sit down and talk about these things and dig into these concepts and we recognise that not as many people maybe have that luxury in, in their jobs. And that's one of the reasons we've put together the Habits of Leadership Academy, to try and create that space, create that time uh, to connect with people uh, you know, from different organisations and different domains. And, you know, if you've been sort of switched on to the idea of radical candour or you, or any of the topics that we cover in our podcast, then you might really benefit and, and also enjoy uh, jumping into the Habits of Leadership Academy. We're actually kicking it off with a free bonus session in the first week of December. And if you want to jump into that, all you need to do is head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the Academy page there. The Academy itself actually runs throughout 2021, but we're getting the ball rolling, as I said, in that first week of December. Tim, any, any final thoughts for us before we head off? Yeah, well, I think one of the other things that Kim said is that radical candor is difficult. Mm. Um, and, you know, as she said, it's difficult up, down and sideways. And I think as the author and the creator of this concept, for her to say it's difficult is really good advice for all of us because they're called difficult conversations for a reason. You know, people struggle with them. People uh, don't like conflict and people don't want to damage relationships and they often feel that by saying what really needs to be said – one of those two things may happen. So I think this is a really great framework for us to consider the importance of having um, those conversations early and regularly and giving each other good feedback and uh, trusting ourselves but really being aware of the the relational awareness that's required to do that and the respect that we need to show each other uh, even if we're not best buddies. Indeed, indeed. So as I've mentioned a couple of times, we're going to put all the things um, related to this episode in the show notes, links to Kim's book, uh, links to the uh, sitcom, links to the the Matrix, the Radical Candor Matrix, and of course a link to our Habits of Leadership Academy. If you've found this episode worthwhile, there's a fair chance someone you know will find it worthwhile, so please share it as far and as wide as you can. Please also, if you get the chance, uh, like this episode, like the podcast, comment on the podcast, and of course, if you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, I seriously don't know what you're doing with your life but um, until next time thanks for joining us tim good on you dan thank you very much and take care take it easy